You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Brendan O'Donnell. Today's story takes a slightly different focus, in that rather than looking at the court case associated with the story, we're looking at the workings of another institution in Ireland, the mental health sector. For the most part, the setting today is in rural west of Ireland, next to the holy site of Loch Derg, famous for its annual pilgrimage. And it's in this peaceful place where we see deteriorating mental health combined with a violent streak, both of which went untreated and resulted in the deaths of three people. Brendan O'Donnell was born to Michael Pat and Margaret Quinn, who were married on the 31st of July, 1969. They lived in a small village in East Clare, close to Loch Derg, near the southern border of County Galway, on the River Shannon. They had four children. Brendan was the third, and was born in March of 1974. Michael Pat worked for Clare County Council, and had an exacting personality. He was a perfectionist and demanded that things be done his way. He would not stand to have his children dirty their shoes or clothing. Everything had to be clean, neat and tidy. There are varying reports as to whether there was physical abuse in the household, but he seemed to take good physical care of his family. They were always dressed and fed well and got any medical care that they needed. The O'Donnells first met with psychiatrist Dr. Ledwith in February 1978 for Brendan's severe behavioural problems, which were apparent from as young as four years old. Margaret described attacks that Brendan would suffer every time he was reprimanded or physically punished for misbehaviour. She was advised that this was not an appropriate response to Brendan's difficulties, but complained that she was basically a servant for her family and that her husband showed no affection to his children. Ledwith met with the family nine times and prescribed Valium for Brendan's deteriorating behaviour. He was having night terrors, was not attending school, and was still bedwetting and wetting himself during the day. Brendan was a clingy child. His sister recalled that he needed his mother to be with him all the time, and that he wouldn't sleep on his own without her. His mother Margaret was a troubled woman, and she suffered badly from depression. It can't be stated when exactly this depression started, but it could have been as early as her teenage years. She was overprotective of her kids, whether it be protection from getting ill or fighting their corner when they had arguments with other children in the area. She kept them close to her and kept a close eye on them, even when they were playing outside. She was taking medication for her symptoms, tryptazole and Valium. She was in and out of hospital and made numerous suicide attempts. One of these attempts, Brendan witnessed, She had drank half a bottle of whiskey and took all of the medication she was on in one go. He saw his mother get out of bed, dazed, before she fell and hit her head on the bedside locker. She began bleeding and Brendan went to get help. His mother was hospitalized for a number of months after this attempt. She died in hospital in January 1984 when Brendan was 10 years old. 
Brendan would later tell J.J. McGiven that he didn't believe that she had died in the course of a hysterectomy, like he had been told, but rather she must have saved up medication being given to her and taken it all together. He seemed convinced that she had killed herself. When Margaret died, the children ranged from age 14 to just 17 months old. She had died of a blood clot that had travelled to her lungs while she was recovering from the operation. At the graveside, Brendan tried to get in the grave with her, saying that she was being buried alive. He was deeply affected and traumatised by her death, and it would be noted later by his teachers that he seemed depressed and anxious, and his behaviour changed drastically. People said that when he ran away, he would spend the night sleeping on his mother's grave. After his mother's death, there were stories about Brendan and his acting out violently. He was cruel to younger children and animals. In one case, he apparently told some younger children to fetch a ball from a patch of nettles. The kids went in and were all horribly stung, but Brendan was reported as laughing at them. There was also an incident involving some kittens that he hung from a clothesline. A younger child came across them and ran away upset. Again, Brendan laughed. He began to skip school and would soon find himself excluded from school completely. Brendan's real trouble began near the end of 1987. He was 13 years old at the time and one day was walking past a workman who was fixing a footpath. The cement was still wet and as Brendan passed a large pile of sand, he decided to kick some of it onto the path. The workman tried to stop Brendan by putting out his shovel and Brendan ended up hitting his shin against it. Accounts vary, but either way, Brendan's shin made contact with the shovel, whether he kicked it or was hit with it by the workman. Brendan flew into a rage and began to throw rocks into the workman's yard. Later that day, he stole a gun from a neighbour, and on his way home, he attacked an elderly man, threatening him with the gun and forcing him to his knees. After he left that man, on his way home, he shot the gun, once into the air and the second time in the direction of the workman's house. The guards were called, and Brendan was sent to reform schools, St. Michael's in Finglas, Dublin, and then on to Clonmel in County Tipperary. This marked the end of his mainstream school career. While in the reform school in Clonmel, Brendan said he was beaten badly with a strap. He ran away a number of times, and finally he was sent to Trinity House in Dublin. Dr. Jerry O'Neill was the consulting psychiatrist for Trinity House, and he met with Brendan seven times while he was in there. He came to form the opinion that Brendan was losing touch with reality and potentially psychotic. He thought he was dangerous and believed that Brendan would have no problem shooting people, particularly other prisoners, out of revenge. And he was also under the delusion that he was involved in the IRA and that they were trying to rescue him from Trinity House and were sending him secret messages. Brendan was put on antipsychotic medication, which seemed to ease his delusions. One problem that medical professionals have noted in treating children with antipsychotics is that it can often cause anxiety, which in turn may require larger doses. Coming off the medication or lowering doses requires careful attention from medical professionals. This may have played a role in what was to come for Brendan when he eventually absconded from Trinity House. On the 16th of February 1989, Brendan turned up at the McGiven home in Derry Con, two miles northwest of Mount Shannon. It was about half ten and it was a cold, wet night. The family were watching a film on the television together. Their dog, a German shepherd named Tiger, began to bark and their oldest son, also called Brendan, went out to see what had the dog barking. 
He returned and told the family that Brendan O'Donnell was outside. Tony McGiven had heard of Brendan and knew that he had absconded from Trinity House Detention Centre in Dublin over a week previously. Brendan was soaked and filthy. He had mud nearly up to his knees, and he was nervous. Mary, Tony McGiven's wife, sorted out some dry clothes for Brendan, and her sister began to cook some food for him to eat. He got cleaned up, dressed, and ate. That night, Tony and Brendan stayed up late talking. Brendan told Tony all about his mother's illness, and Tony promised not to call the guards on Brendan. They made up a bed for Brendan to sleep on that night. Two days later, Tony arranged for Brendan to meet with a local police officer, Garda O'Hara, with the promise that he would hear Brendan out on the abuse that he had suffered from the staff and other detainees in Trinity House, and that he wouldn't have to go back there yet. The three returned to Tony's house. Garda O'Hara was suspicious of the fact that Brendan was dry and clean for someone who said that he'd been staying in a rundown and abandoned stable for two weeks. Tony's brother, JJ, lived in New Orleans and was a social worker. He advised Tony that Brendan needed a lot of help, and Tony should try and get as much assistance from the state as possible. JJ had a friend who worked in Ballinasloe Hospital near Galway, and this friend, Joe Carney, soon arrived at the McGiven home. He spoke to Brendan for some time, and after their meeting, he told Tony that Brendan needed help, and he should be admitted to a mental health facility as soon as possible. He told Garda O'Hara what he had advised Tony, and they all agreed to get a medical certificate for Brendan to stop him having to return to Trinity House in the short term. In the meantime, they would try and get him into a hospital. Our Lady's Hospital in Ennis couldn't take him. Mount Shannon wouldn't take him, although this decision didn't have the support of all the doctors on staff. Next on the list was St. Bridget's Hospital in Ballinasloe. Maybe Joe Carney would be able to help Brendan if he was there. Tony gathered what little money he had from his dairy farm and decided to try and use that as an incentive to the hospital. Maybe they would take him in if they could pay. They arrived in Ballinasloe, and after waiting a short while, one of the doctors came and spoke to Brendan. He was to be admitted immediately. A few minutes later, though, another doctor came in and told Tony that they couldn't take Brendan. No explanation given. But the hospital in Galway City would take them. Both Brendan and Tony were angry at this decision. Where did they need to go, and what did they need to do to get the boy help? Brendan said to Tony, I told you they wouldn't help me. So they got back into the car and headed to St. Anne's in Galway. Brendan was nervous, anxious, and agitated, and Tony thought that he might jump out of the car, so they didn't stop on the way there. They had been on the go since 8 a.m. that morning. When they arrived in Galway, it was then three o'clock, and they hadn't stopped to eat because of Tony's fears that Brendan would run away. When they arrived at St. Anne's, they explained the situation to the doctors there, but they needed Brendan's father, Michael Pat, to come and sign the admission papers if they were to take him in. Initially, Michael Pat said that he would come, but then he said he couldn't. He gave permission for the doctors to speak to Brendan, though, what little good that did. Brendan was unable to speak in detail about what happened to him in Trinity House. The doctors assured him that he wouldn't be punished by Trinity House when he returned, but of course this did nothing to allay Brendan's fear of the place. Eventually, Tony and Brendan headed home, tired, hungry, and frustrated. When they arrived back at the house, Gardo O'Hara was waiting for them. He had been contacted by the hospital in Galway and Trinity House. 
Brendan would have to go back to the detention center. He had until the end of the week. Friday, the 24th of February, Tony was preparing to do the round trip to Dublin with Brendan to return to Trinity House. After Brendan had said his goodbyes to the McGiven family, he got in the car and they were on their way. They needed to stop at a local priest's house to collect a package that was to be dropped off in Dublin. But when Tony returned to the car, Brendan was gone. Tony glimpsed him in the distance, running off. He tried to catch up with him, but Brendan disappeared into the forest at Countryside. Trinity House was informed that Brendan had gone on the run yet again. The administrator that Tony spoke with agreed with him that Brendan needed to be in a mental health facility rather than at Trinity House. That evening, Brendan walked through the back door of the McGiven home, soaked from another day out in the rain. The next day, the McGivens convinced Brendan to tell them what had happened at Trinity House. He'd been there only a month before one of the employees began to lock him in a cell and sexually abuse him. The last time he was abused, he had suffered serious physical injuries to his genitals. Tony contacted his solicitor, who advised that Brendan be examined by a doctor as soon as possible to corroborate the story about the injuries. A few days after this, Tony spoke to the administrator in Trinity House and gave details of the abuse that Brendan had alleged, including the name of the employee that Brendan named as his abuser. The next week, the search for Brendan by the Gardaí continued, and Tony decided to visit Michael Pat to see if they could work together for the boy. Michael Pat was angry, though, and demanded that Brendan be returned to Dublin. Tony said he didn't know where Brendan was, but Tony did know. He had been sleeping at Tony's house while someone kept watch in case the guards came to check the house in the night. Tony then made an arrangement with a friend of his, Sonny Farrell, that Brendan could stay with him until Tony had sorted something out that would prevent him being sent back to Trinity House. Over the next week, the guards called the McGiven House nearly every day to see if they could spot Brendan. Eventually, the solicitor got back to Tony and advised how they might be able to take Brendan's case back to the courts. It would cost a lot of money, but JJ, Tony's brother, reiterated that Brendan needed help, not to return to the detention centre. It was decided that they would petition the court to set aside his sentence and to award custody to the McGivens. The court date was set for the 17th of April in Carlow County Court. Letters were collected to present to the court in support of their case, including one from Tony's brother-in-law who had a job for Brendan at a factory. All of this would help build the case to allow Brendan to stay with the McGivens. One letter was from Brendan's last teacher, and it described how when Brendan had started going to school at Mount Shannon, he was a well-behaved student and took part in school activities such as hurling, which he excelled at. For the last number of months before Brendan left the school, however, it was clear that Brendan was suffering from anxiety or depression. He often cried in the classroom and complained of stomach problems that had no physical explanation, and the teacher suspected that their cause was more psychological in nature. He suspected that Brendan had been profoundly affected when his mother had died. The day before the court date, a local priest, Father McNamara, arranged to act as a go-between between Michael Pat and Tony, as they weren't on speaking terms. He arrived the day before the court date to deliver a signed consent from Brendan's parents. Tony had some worries about Father McNamara's involvement with Brendan. Brendan had served Mass for him, and once informed Tony that Father McNamara was, and I quote, 
bent. Brendan later told Tony that McNamara had given large sums of money to Brendan, and he thought that Brendan might have been blackmailing the priest. Tony had also witnessed McNamara telling Brendan that he loved him and had seen him place his hand on Brendan's inner thigh. But Tony needed McNamara's help, at least until the court case was over. He warned McNamara that Brendan was capable of inflicting serious violence on him if he didn't stay away and advised Brendan that he should steer clear of Father McNamara. He knew it was a waste of time reporting anything to the church higher-ups, but he did tell the local guardee, despite feeling that it too would be a waste of time. He was told that over the years many reports had been made about McNamara, but nothing had been done. The day of the hearing, they all travelled to Carlo to put forth their case. After hearing everyone, the judge granted the request for foster care and put Brendan on probation. He was to appear again before the court in Nina in September of 1989. There was no order for Brendan to engage in any kind of counselling or to attend a mental health facility. The Garda investigation into the abuses in Trinity House came to nothing. Although the Garda who had interviewed Brendan said that he had no doubt that he was telling the truth, the case could not be proven and it was dropped some six weeks after the investigation began. The staff member concerned resigned. After some time settling into his new existence, where he was no longer on the run, Brendan seemed to be happy in the McGiven household. It was noted, however, that he seemed constantly to be in fear of the Gardaí coming after him, and that he was overly concerned with cleanliness. So much so that one of Tony's sons, out of sheer irritation at Brendan's pickiness, rubbed a slice of bread on the kitchen floor and then ate it, ostensibly to show Brendan that the germs wouldn't kill him. Brendan became very attached to Mary, Tony's wife. She had bad back problems, and he would often care for her, getting her tea and helping her around the house. But Brendan was work-shy otherwise, and didn't do his fair share on the farm. Mary eventually ended up being hospitalized, and Brendan seemed to miss her quite a bit. Tony would spend a lot of time visiting her in the hospital and bringing everyone to see her. One Saturday, Tony was going to the hospital when Brendan asked if he could go and visit his mother's grave. He said he would cycle the four miles to Clonrush and back. Tony let him go, despite his reservations, but warned that Brendan was to be home early, before dark. When Tony got back in, there was no Brendan. He didn't come home that night. The next morning, Tony heard that Maxie Bogenberger's car had been stolen and crashed. Brendan arrived back to the house at half eleven the following morning, and initially denied being responsible for the stolen and wrecked car. But finally, Brendan admitted that he had taken the car. He said that he wanted to bring his sister Anne-Marie to England as she was unhappy at home, but he drove too fast and crashed on a bend. Tony rang the local Garda superintendent. He explained what had happened, and Superintendent McCarthy then spoke to Brendan. He suggested that perhaps Brendan had learned his lesson, and as the car was old, perhaps Bogenberger would accept payment for it. The guard didn't want to send the boy back to Trinity House, as he knew he was getting no help there. Soon September rolled around and it was time for Brendan to appear again in front of the court, this time in Nina. The morning of the hearing, Tony got the car ready. Brendan ducked back into the house and then didn't return. Tony went to investigate, thinking that Brendan had locked himself into the bathroom to harm himself, so he broke in the door. The window was open and Brendan was gone. Tony informed the guard station what had happened and had to travel to Nina on his own. A warrant was issued for Brendan. 
He didn't turn up at the McGiven house until half eleven that night when he walked in the back door. Brendan was on the run again. Tony had spoken with the local guardie and had set out a plan for them to arrest Brendan. He was to allow Brendan to sleep in the McGiven home and the guardie would arrive in the night to arrest him. The arrest went as planned. Brendan got up and went with the officers. He was so placid that they didn't even handcuff him. But one officer moved down the stairs and into the hallway a little too quickly. Brendan saw his opportunity. He ran back up the stairs and jumped out a window. He was gone into the night. He came back the next day looking for food. After getting something to eat, Brendan stole 200 pounds from one of Tony's sons who had kept it in a box in his room. A few days later, on the 3rd of September, Brendan stole another car. The owner of the car, Dennis Tiernan, came to see Tony, and the two men contacted the guardie and started searching the countryside, looking for him. Tony found the car at half six the next morning, on fire on the side of the road. Brendan had lost control of the car and wasn't able to get it back on the road, so he set it alight. A few days later, Brendan turned up yet again at the McGiven home and agreed to go back to Trinity House if they collected him rather than the guardie. Tony had a friend, Dennis Woods, come over to help him keep an eye on Brendan and stop him running off until the people from Trinity House could come and collect him. It would be at least a three-hour wait for the journey from Dublin. Six weeks later, while Brendan was on a weekend release pass, he absconded again. He stole yet another car from the Bogenbergers. This one they got back when someone spotted Brendan driving it around and he jumped out of the car and ran off. He then stole another car and broke into a house before being arrested at Shannon Airport where he was trying to flee to England. He was ordered back to Trinity House. While there, he was assessed by psychiatrist Dr. O'Neill and questioned by the guardie about the thefts and break-in. One of the guards told Brendan that Tony had helped the guardie arrest him the night he ran away, which broke any bond of trust that the two had had. Tony didn't see Brendan again until he appeared in front of the court in Tulla County Clare in February 1990. He was given more time in Trinity House. Tony noticed that he had bandages on his wrist. Brendan had cut himself in front of an administrator at Trinity House after getting upset. Trinity House continued to let Brendan out on weekend passes, and Brendan continued to run away. After a few days, he would ring Tony, and Tony would arrange to have him return to the detention centre. The last time Brendan absconded, he was sent to Spike Island, an adult prison housed in what was once a British army barracks on an island in Cork Harbour. While there, other prisoners drugged Brendan and then burned his feet with boiling water. It was here that he also made the most serious attempt on his life, when he had another inmate cut his wrist to the bone while he bit down on a rag to stop himself from screaming. He was found before he could bleed out, but needed surgery to repair the damage he had done to his wrist. He then tried to rip out the stitches. He was placed on suicide watch and transferred to the Central Mental Hospital in Dundrum in Dublin, a hospital for the criminally insane. While there, J.J. McGiven visited Brendan and wrote a psychological report detailing his concerns. He sent this to Dundrum on the 17th of October 1990, but he heard nothing more of it. Superintendent McCarthy told the McGiven men that he was worried that Brendan would come out worse than he had gone in and had real fears that Brendan would hurt someone. 
Brendan got no help for his psychological problems, and he was not at all prepared to be out on his own when he was released from Dundrum in spring of 1991 at 17 years old. Soon he was back with Tony. He told him that a friend of his, Father Nalan, had gotten a caravan for him and asked Tony if he could park it on the farm. Tony allowed it. The caravan wasn't in great condition, however, and he soon moved to a camping ground and then in with another family in Whitegate. Many people tried to get him work or training of some sort, but he shirked that responsibility and avoided the matter at all costs. He was in receipt of a payment from the local health board and didn't seem motivated to try and get work for himself. 1991 and 1992 saw Brendan moving around a lot. He relied on the kindness of other people to find somewhere to stay, to sleep, to shower. A number of break-ins seemed to follow wherever he went. He continued to move around and at one point ended up in England, but he was arrested for snatching a handbag and eventually returned to his father's house. Michael Pat would not allow him to stay, nor would his grandmother. Finally, he settled in a flat in Port Umna and his sister Anne moved in close by. Things began to spiral out of control for Brendan when in September or October of 1992, Brendan arrived at his sister's door and demanded that she make him a sandwich. She said she was feeding her seven-month-old, but would make him something to eat after. Brendan grabbed a knife and swung it at her. Anne-Marie managed to fend him off enough that the knife didn't slash her face, but he ended up stabbing her in the leg. She grabbed the baby and ran to the bedroom, but couldn't get the door locked. Brendan held her and the baby captive in the room for three or four hours before she managed to get the attention of a downstairs neighbour. Brendan went back to his own apartment then, and returned with a hatchet and an axe. Anne-Marie went to the Garda station and reported her brother's violent behaviour. He followed her all the way there, waving the axe and shouting. He was committed to Ballinasloe Hospital. Astoundingly, a few weeks later, he was released back into the community after apparently convincing the staff at Ballinasloe that he was mentally stable. Shortly after his release, and before he was next to appear in court in Port Omna for the various crimes he had committed in the previous year, he returned to England. He had broken into a curate's house and reportedly left the country dressed as a priest. He was arrested in England for the handbag snatching and was sentenced to one year in prison. Late in the summer of 1993, Imelda Riney moved into a house that Brendan had often stayed in before he moved to Port Umna. It had been a holiday home before the owner had passed away, so it was often empty. Melda was 29 years old and a single mother of two young children. She had met Brendan and seemed to have a genuine sympathy for him. She was close to his granduncle, son O'Donnell, and likely heard a lot about Brendan through him. She was a free-spirited artist, and like Sophie Toscan de Plantier, wanted to be near nature to inspire her. She was in the peace of the Irish countryside, with the pilgrimage site of Loch Derg close beside her. Almost a year later, in March of 1994, Brendan returned home from England after being released from prison, despite the fact that he was still on probation and shouldn't have left the UK. He tried staying with his grandmother, but other family members objected to him being there because he was on the run and they thought he was dangerous. So he found himself staying in a tent in Craig Forest. Brendan went looking for another house to stay in and called to his uncle's son O'Donnell. He saw that someone was living in the nearby holiday home and his uncle told him that Imelda had moved in with her children and that he was not to bother them. But 
it's thought that Brendan ignored this and asked Imelda for help. Eventually, Brendan made his way back to the McGiven home, where he met the eldest son and Mary's sister. Tony and his wife were away in Germany. The two grudgingly gave Brendan some food and drove him back to the woods where he was staying in order to get him out of the house. The next day he returned. The McGivens were suspicious of him and fearful that he might be trying to find Tony's guns, which Tony had hidden before he left. When Brendan left, he was angry as Tony's son wouldn't give him a lift back to the forest, so he began walking. He found himself at Tony's brother's mobile home on the road to Mount Shannon. He knocked at the door and Frank asked him in for tea. He noticed that Brendan was agitated and his behaviour was off. Before the kettle had boiled, though, a car screeched into the drive and out jumped two guardie. Brendan ran out of the door with his right hand in his coat pocket, as if he had a gun. He told the guards to back off, and they did. They, like most guardie, weren't armed. Brendan ran off across the fields. He was on the run again, for jumping probation in England and for missing his court date in Portumna on the charges of assaulting his sister and her baby. He had also recently stolen another car, and surely they would want to talk to him for that, too. He made his way back to his tent by the back roads. Tony wasn't around to help him, so his only hope now was Imelda Riney. The next morning, Friday the 30th of April, Imelda got up and set about getting her eldest son ready for her ex-husband to bring to school. After the two had left, she was in the house on her own with her youngest boy, Liam. At about half ten, there was a knock on the door. She knew who it was. She didn't want to answer the door to Brendan, who she had hoped had gotten help from Tony McGiven, but she was frightened of him. When she opened the door, he was standing there with a rifle. In her shock, she yelled at him that he couldn't bring that gun into the house. He was talking about a plan he had told her of, that she was going to help him rob a post office so that he could get enough money to flee to France and away from the Irish and English authorities. She tried to convince him that she couldn't wouldn't help him, and tried to settle him down by putting on the kettle and starting the fire up. Brendan was irate and insistent, however. They would rob the post office. But first, he raped her. After, the three of them got into the car, Imelda and her son in the front and Brendan in the back. He would duck down behind the seats every time a car passed or a person got close. They argued the whole way down to the village. Brendan tried to convince her of his plan, but eventually realized that she wasn't going to go along with it. He'd never get her to wait for him while he went in and robbed the post office. Imelda tried to get the attention of a neighbor, May Tuhi, who was out delivering post, but although she noticed that Imelda looked strange in the car, she didn't understand what she was trying to signal her about. As the car drove past, she thought she saw someone who looked like Brendan O'Donnell in the back seat. They drove around aimlessly until Brendan directed that she take him back towards Craig Forest. They got off the main road, and when Brendan thought the car was safe from notice by passerby or particularly the police, he ordered Imelda out of the car with her son and made them walk through the forest. When the little boy was no longer able to walk, and Imelda was no longer able to carry him, she turned and confronted Brendan. She grabbed for the gun, and Brendan shot her in the face. When he realized what he'd done, and that he was now left with only a young child for company, 
and as a witness, he shot the boy too. Liam was three. He threw some brush over the bodies and returned to the car. He knew he needed to get himself and his stuff out of the woods, and that he needed to move the car away from the bodies. He waited till dark, and then drove the car near to where his tent and belongings were. He gathered up his things, and then arranged by payphone to leave the stuff with a friend. He then drove the car to a secluded wooded area near Loch Ray and set the car on fire. Then he began the walk to his grandmother's house, where he thought he might find refuge. By the next day, he had made it to his uncle's house. He told the family that the guardie might be looking for him because he had stolen a car. They saw that he had a gun. They fed him and then gave him a lift down to his grandmother's home in Airscourt. After acting erratically there and showing off the gun to his cousins, he left the house for fear of an argument with another of his uncles and said he would be staying in a nearby shed for the night. He didn't stay there, though, and after his uncle and cousins were gone, he snuck back to his grandmother's house, where he was put up in secret for the night, lest it cause arguments. The next sighting of Brendan was the next day, Sunday the 1st of May, the day that Imelda and her son were reported missing to the guardie by her ex-husband. Due to Imelda's free-spirited nature, she wasn't immediately reported missing by her ex, and the guardie were slow to act on the report initially. Brendan was seen outside the rectory of Father Joe Welsh. He was watching the priest and some children playing hurling, and the priest's sister saw him standing there, staring. Brendan remained in the air court area, but there was no further sightings until Anne-Marie saw her brother on the following Tuesday, the 3rd of May. She said she met him when she went to her grandmother's house. He was acting erratically, opening and closing doors. She found out he had a gun and told him that he had to leave. He said he couldn't as people were coming for him. Eventually he calmed down, ate something, and left. The next day, after she returned to her apartment in Port Umna, her grandmother called to say that there was a young woman and her son missing. Anne-Marie said she didn't know anything about it. Shortly after, the guardie arrived looking for Brendan. She told them when she had last seen him, and told him that he had a gun. That night, Brendan decided to attempt again to get money and transportation so that he could get out of the country. He decided to break into Father Joe Welsh's to rob him and take his car. When he entered the house with his rifle, he ran nearly immediately into Father Joe, who remained calm despite Brendan's erratic behaviour. Father Welsh asked Brendan had he anything to do with the missing woman and child. Brendan said that they were being held by a group of people out in the woods and that if Father Joe would agree to help him escape, he would take him to Imelda and Liam. Welsh insisted that he be brought to where Imelda and her child were being held. Brendan felt he had no choice but to have Father Welsh drive out to Craig Wood, so they got into his car and started to head in that direction. Brendan got more and more nervous the closer he got to Craig. Father Walsh drove, and Brendan was in the back of the car with the gun. By the time they got to the place where Brendan had made Imelda park the car, it was dark. Brendan tried to convince Father Welsh that it was too dark to find where they were being kept, and Father Welsh suggested that they stay in the car until the morning. Brendan decided that they would drive instead to Craig House, the place he had been born. 
They stayed that night in the house and Brendan told Father Welsh all about his life. When it was bright, Father Welsh said that it was time to go back to the forest. He knew now that they were looking for bodies. But Brendan wasn't able to find the path that he, Imelda and Liam had taken. He got agitated and told the priests that they were going to leave. Father Welsh wanted to continue to look for the two, particularly as he wanted to administer the last rites to them. Father Welsh knelt and began saying the rosary. As Father Welsh knelt there with his back to Brendan, Brendan pointed the gun at the back of his head and shot. Brendan ran back to the car and began driving, headed towards Port Umna. But eventually, he found himself in Tipperary and began to drive around aimlessly. By this time, the search for Imelda and her son, and now Father Welsh, was in full swing. The three had all gone missing around the same time, and the local rumour was that perhaps the two were somehow connected. In the wake of the Annie Murphy scandal, it seemed reasonable to think that the two adults might have been having an affair. Annie Murphy had just released a book detailing her secret affair with Bishop Eamon Casey. Tony McGiven knew that the three missing people were connected, but not in the way it had been rumoured. Brendan being back in the area and on the run was the link between the Rhineys and Welsh. When Tony arrived home from Germany, he immediately began driving the area to see if he could find Brendan. He had a loaded gun with him. Eventually, the guardie contacted him and asked if he would assist in their search for the missing people, as they suspected that Brendan was involved too. After consulting the maps and discussing the areas that Tony had already searched, they decided that Craig Wood would be a good place to start. Tony said Brendan often spoke about the place. They headed towards Craig House and quickly saw signs that someone had recently been there with a car and had been in a rush to leave. The Gardaí decided to do a large-scale search of the area to take place the next day, Saturday, March 7, 1994. That night, Tony didn't sleep. He got one hang-up phone call which he suspected was Brendan, and the Gardaí had his house watched in case Brendan were to show up. That morning, Fiona Sampson woke at quarter to eight to the sound of glass breaking. She got out of bed and found a man in her kitchen with a pair of tights over his head. She recognised him as Brendan O'Donnell as she had been at school with him and had seen him around the area. He asked her if she could drive, and when she said she could, he ordered her out into the car barefoot and in her nightdress. They began to drive towards Williamstown Harbour. Fiona knew that Brendan was wanted by the Gardaí in connection with the disappearances of Imelda and Liam Riney and Father Welsh. The story had been all over the news and the Gardaí were actively searching for him. When she asked Brendan about this, he admitted that he knew where the Rhineys were and told her that they were safe, but he insisted that he had nothing to do with the disappearance of the priest. Brendan found a denim jacket in the back of the car and handed it over to Fiona, telling her to put it on as she wasn't dressed, but ordered her to keep driving. She lost control of the car and it spun off the road. They were unable to get it back on the road and Brendan forced Fiona to go barefoot across the countryside. They heard a helicopter overhead. Brendan was paranoid that the helicopter would have metal detectors and long-range guns. They came across a number of houses, and Brendan attempted to get another car. The first car they came across was too old, according to him, and at the second property the owner was equipped with a gun himself and ordered them away, no doubt because he had heard the coverage and knew there was a manhunt underway in the area. 
The third house had no car. Finally, they went back to the road and flagged down a car which was being driven by Eddie Cleary, and Brendan ordered the driver to let himself and Fiona in. Eddie saw the nearby guards, who in turn ordered Brendan to give himself up, and a warning shot was fired. But Brendan threatened to shoot Fiona and tossed her into the car, ordering Eddie to drive. As Eddie tried to turn the car in order to escape the guardie, Brendan became agitated and fired a shot through the roof of the car. The guardie were right beside the car at this stage, so Eddie grabbed the barrel of the gun and pulled it away from Brendan. Fiona unlocked the door and was lifted from the car by a guarda. She was carried to safety as she was still barefoot and her feet were cut and bruised from the forced cross-country march across the fields with Brendan. Brendan was reefed from the car, and as he was lying on the road, he said, I'm fucked now. Brendan was arrested. He was taken to the barracks at Loch Ray, and Tony McGiven was sent for to see if he could get what had become of Imelda, Liam, and Father Welsh out of Brendan. Brendan would tell him nothing, though, but became more agitated when Tony declared that he didn't need Brendan to tell him anything. He knew that they were dead, and he knew that they were in Craigwood, and Tony was going to find them. His agitation was enough for Tony. The guardie decided to commence the large-scale search of the area. Later that day, Father Welsh's body was found. The search would resume in the morning for Imelda and Liam Riney, and they were found not long after the searching began the Sunday morning. Initially, Brendan was irate at the news that the bodies had been found. He was abusive towards the guardie and refused to give them any information but eventually he became morose and lamented what he had done and said that his mother would be disappointed in him. Quickly, though, he began to think about how he might get away with the acts, and his mind turned from being punished in prison to trying to land himself in the central mental hospital again. While waiting for trial, Brendan's health declined rapidly. He alternatively went on hunger strike and then became grossly overweight, and he was so medicated that his family had trouble understanding what he was saying when they visited or called. Unsurprisingly, Brendan put up an insanity defense at his trial. He would have to prove the McNaughton rules applied to his case by showing that he suffered a disease or defect of the mind, which meant that he didn't know the nature or quality of his acts, and that his actions were wrong. So the trial itself came down to the testimony of the various psychiatrists and medical professionals that had interacted with Brendan over the years, and their interpretation of the root cause of his illness. Did he suffer from a personality disorder, or did he suffer from psychosis at the time of the murders? If he suffered from some sort of personality disorder, it was likely that he knew the nature and quality of his actions, and that they were wrong. Psychosis, however, would mean that he had no understanding of the nature of his behaviour or its effects. There was no agreement amongst the professionals as to whether Brendan suffered from schizophrenia. Brendan himself also gave evidence. He told the jury that he and Imelda had been in a relationship. At that time, although he was happy with Imelda, he testified that he was depressed and hearing voices. He admitted to breaking into a house, and when he found no money, he stole a gun and bullets, and that he planned to rob the post office with those so that he could get away to France. After he stole the gun, he walked across a field into Imelda's house. She told him to leave the gun outside and put the kettle on for tea. They went upstairs and had sex then. There was evidence that Imelda had engaged in sexual activity just before her death but there were no definitive signs of a struggle and therefore could not be conclusively stated that Brendan had raped her. 
After this, Brendan said he began to hear voices, telling him that Imelda was the devil's daughter. He went and got the gun and forced Imelda and Liam out of the house. When in the forest, there was a struggle for the gun and Brenton shot her, because the voices in his head said that she was the devil's daughter. In his telling of the story, Brendan shot little Liam because he didn't want him to be without his mother. How thoughtful. It seems to me to be very reminiscent of his attachment to his own mother and visiting her grave. The prosecution argued that Brendan had been stalking Imelda and hadn't been in contact with her. But Brendan denied this and said he hadn't been watching her. For someone who insisted he was in a relationship with Imelda, he knew very little details of her life, when her older son was at school, how her sister had recently stayed with her, or that Imelda was a strict vegetarian. Brendan testified that he had heard the devil's voice telling him to kill Father Joe Welsh, and that the priest was going to baptize the devil's son the next day. He said that he had Father Joe drive out to Craig, and that he told Joe that he was going to shoot him to stop him christening the devil's son. He said that Father Joe had offered him money and a watch before being ordered to kneel down and being shot twice in the head. Before he shot him, Father Joe asked Brendan if he could arrange it that he would be buried in his parish, but Brendan said he wouldn't as he was trying to baptize the devil's baby. Brendan described the devil as being eight foot tall with green eyes like a cat hooves instead of feet, and smoking a pipe. This kind of hallucination had not been observed in Brendan previously, and it's entirely possible that this kind of religious obsession that he described on the stand was an attempt to make out his insanity defense. Brendan said that he felt happy when he got into Father Joe's car and drove towards Limerick, but soon started to think that people were laughing at him. In his closing speech, senior counsel for the defense argued that at the time of the killings, Brendan was suffering from disorganized schizophrenia, which meant that he did not know the nature of his actions, that they were wrong, or if he did know, that he was helpless to stop himself. He urged the jury to find Brendan insane. He pointed to the previous diagnoses he had received in Ballinasloe, and to the fact that all of the doctors that had taken the stand agreed that schizophrenia was a major mental illness, although only three of the psychiatrists had diagnosed Brendan as such. Two hours after deliberations began, the jury returned to the courtroom and asked for transcripts from several of the medical witnesses and from Anne-Marie, Brendan's sister. But this request was not granted. The judge did acknowledge that it was a very difficult case, as the trial had gone on so long. The jury seemed to be taking the insanity defense very seriously, but eventually they found that he was guilty of the murders and he was sentenced to life imprisonment. It was, at the time, the longest trial in the state's history, lasting 53 days. Brendan was transferred to Dundrum Mental Hospital shortly after sentencing, but according to a psychiatrist there, he never really settled into a routine. None of the medications seemed to help. The staff at the hospital were concerned about Brendan's violent outbursts, but thought that he was more likely to injure himself than others. At one point, he smashed a window and cut his hand in the process, and he had to go to St. Vincent's for stitches. After this incident, Brendan was given a tranquilizer. Two days later, on the 24th of July, 1995, he was found dead. An inquest was held into his death on the 26th of November 1997 to establish the cause of Brendan's death. One of his psychiatrists described him as, quote, one of the most complicated, problematic patients I have ever dealt with, end quote. 
Dr. Harbison, the chief state pathologist, found that Brendan had extensive brain injuries, and according to his sister, stated at the inquest that Brendan had died from an overdose of Thorazine, which was what the hospital had used to tranquilize him after his latest incident of self-harm, though the psychiatrist stated that it was only a moderate dose that had been administered. If Brendan O'Donnell had not committed such violent and senseless crimes, he would be a tragic figure. Most people with mental health difficulties are never violent, and perhaps if Brendan had received adequate treatment and support from a young age, his proclivity towards violence might have been stemmed and his crimes avoided. The failure of the Irish healthcare system to properly diagnose and treat Brendan O'Donnell is surely a contributory factor in the events and circumstances which led to the deaths of Imelda and Liam Riney and Father Joseph Welsh. Thank you for listening to the Men's Ray podcast. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter at Men's Ray Pod. Join in on the discussion at the Men's Rea Pod discussion group on Facebook, or you can send us in your questions, comments, or suggestions at mensreapod at gmail.com. Don't forget to check out our awesome mugs and t-shirts by heading on over to the website www.mensreapod.com and clicking on the merch page. I'd like to do a big shout out to Katie for suggesting this subject. Thanks very much, Katie. I hope you and your doggo think I did it justice. I'd like to take a moment to thank our newest sponsors on Patreon, Lainey from True Crime Fan Club, Kevin from Mirths and Monsters Podcast, Anne-Marie B, and Rebecca Manners. Thank you guys. Your support means a lot and helps to defray some of the production costs of the podcast. If you'd like to sponsor the podcast, head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. I'd also like to thank our reviewers on Apple Podcasts, Topath Terror, CIL9MXM and Selwyn Leonard. This podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources used for today's episode can be found on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do.